0: From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at InterstateBatteries.com. Interstate Batteries. Outrageously dependable. This is the Legs Podcast. I'm your host Adam Keith and Matt Dye. And we have got a very special podcast for you guys this week. Um, I don't know what we'll title it yet, but it's kind of a going with the theme of March Madness. March Management Woo-woo! Madness. Um, Madness all around from so many we've different We've got a angles. bracket set up of all the things that you can do which, this time which of year. Which and... Yeah, which one we would do, and then when it comes down to it, I guess as the bracket, and we go through the elimination process, what's the most important thing to do this time of year? I don't know if we'll get there or not. Probably not. It sounded good. It sounded good. I was trying to stick with the theme of NCAA basketball, but here we are. We've got a lot of things that we're going to cover a lot of things you can do this time of the year um, to improve your land, your hunting, and everything in between. And then we're going to also cover some kind of background on uh, Matt and I, ourself. Uh We've been asked this question a lot lately for some reason, so we thought we would answer that as well. Um, so we've got a lot of topics to cover, a lot of information to give, and so and we better really get to rolling. really
1: a couple new things at the very end that we yeah. cannot wait to just uncork the bottle and, and get out there. It's, it's been fun. We've kept our mouths quiet for a while, but um, man, it's going to be good. going to be good. So a lot of different kind of topics this week, but um, ones are all important to cover, important to talk about. So let's get after it. Number one. You know what's coming up around the corner in a couple months? Oh, yeah.
0: QDMA, National Convention. Woo-wee! Yeah, we did it last year. We were down there in New Orleans. New Orleans. And uh, in July. Yep. And it was hot and sticky. (laughs) But you know what? That didn't
1: matter because... We were inside talking deer hunting. Deer hunting, deer management, land management, with the best speakers, educators in the country. And you talk about a room filled with information. Um, each seminar was awesome. Um, we were fortunate enough to speak there and, and do our own seminar. Hopefully it was cool. Hopefully people enjoyed but we're going to be back again this year um, to talk more and on different topics um, to the folks
0: attending National Convention. And we hope you're there. Yeah. You know what I like about that convention is the fact that there's so much information there. There's so many like-minded people. Yeah. We're all like... Everybody who's there is is probably interested in proving the land for the wildlife. For sure. And for sure. so we're all kind of very like-minded. But then not only that, there's a lot of great speakers. I mean, we spoke. Uh, we were like second out of the gate in the morning or first. I don't remember. We
1: were first that morning. First.
0: Uh, and as soon as we got done, we just turned around and got in the chairs and listened to the next yeah. speakers. Started taking notes. Um but man, it's just it's so cool to be
1: so immersed in in that atmosphere with I mean, these, there's people from all over the country, Michigan, New York, uh, Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, all over everywhere in between. And it's just such a it's such a cool atmosphere to be a part of and listen from everyone else's stories and, and trials and failures and successes Um basically to reach one ultimate goal, and that's just just make deer hunting better. And that uh, a lot of times resorts to making the habitat better. Yeah. Um, so a lot of hot topics, a lot of, again, great speakers. So if you... Haven't signed up? Sign up start here in March for that convention. Be sure to check it out and um, and sign it's up a great it.
0: place. It's one of the few shows where we take our wives with us. Oh yeah, um, just because there's something for them to do sure. outside of the convention in New Cause Orleans. Because you know so. they
1: don't come to listen to us speak and no. talk more about deer and habitat and whatever. But it it is it's a fun it's a fun place to go to. Yeah, good so, for everyone.
0: Check it out. It's coming up. Jump on board and see us down there. Absolutely. So, what else do we have to cover? Whenever it comes to this time of the year... March Madness. Outside of basketball, there's madness going on pretty much year-round when it comes to a, a land manager. There's always something to do. And this is a time of year where it kind of gets down for us. It's almost crunch time because oh. we're trying to knock out as much as we can before turkey season. You know what's weird? Most
1: times, I feel like from a deer hunter's point of view, this is, like, boring. This is typically after january it's like oh downtime what do i do i can't hunt anything blah 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 man this is this is not a time to sit idle this is not a time to just be thinking about getting back to the deer stand this is a time to really get after it and knock out a lot of these projects that we're talking about and it's it's crunch time for sure um what do you think Is number one on your list that you would be like, oh, March, I got to get it done. I just have to. For
0: me, I always try March, even February is the time of the year where I try to pull soil samples at some point. Yeah. Um, And as boring as that, that's one of those things that it's like soil, oh, boring, but it's one of the most crucial things we can do to check out what's going on in the soil, check out the health, and try to improve it.
1: It's a foundation of basically the rest of the year and success, really, in your food plot program.
0: And the foundation of the world is, is we talk soil health, but that's a whole other podcast. Um, but yes, I, I'm trying to, and when it all comes down to it, there's two things. There's a lot of things. I, who am I kidding? There's a long list, but soil samples is one of those that it's like, I got to get this done. And so don't overlook it Two For me, I,
1: and, and especially in, in our area right now, um, it, it's different across the, across the country, but I think of frost seeding. Mm. I think of really readdressing or planting clover stands. And yeah. this is a great time of the year to do it, especially in our area and areas north of us. Um, and if you're not familiar with frost seeding, it's simply because clover seed is so small, you're you're going in and broadcasting clover and the freezing and thawing action over the next month or so, these last frosts that are going to occur are basically opening up like a pore. The ground is opening up and then closing back up, closing back up, and it plants clover at the right depth. Yeah. Like, it's
0: so simple. That motion is basically... Breathing. The soil is like breathing. Breathing, yes. And that process basically sucks that seed down into the into the soil you
1: can't go wrong
0: no and it's it's so simple so again
1: if you need to if you had some bare spots or places you need to address it's a great time of the year to go out and do that hit those up freshen them up and get them ready for spring
0: and and that kind of goes with when you're establishing a clover stand typically the process we use is plant clover and a cover crop so maybe wheat or oats whatever in the fall and try to get that stand established and then come back in February or March and look and see what areas didn't get great coverage and then frost seed to fill that in so this spring and summer you have a very, a very nice stand of clover and, and cover crop. Because, uh, and yeah, crop, so. we,
1: all, we all know what comes if you have bare spots in your in your clover. And, that, and that's and You're going to say
0: weeds, but, yeah, weeds. Weeds. Possibly.
1: <laughs> so you can freshen them up. With the, with the frost seeding technique. And I say possibly because easy. a lot
0: of times you're going to see ragweed. And even we though it has that. weed, we and we're that. okay with that. Yeah. But um, just to make sure you don't have some other weed that may come back um, that you don't want, make sure you get a good stand in your clover plots. So um, going back to the soil, since we kind of discussed frost seeding. Now, yeah. when it comes to... I'm trying to give some more information here so it's not just, hey, frost seed. checklist, deal. Um, When it comes to the frost seeding, if you're looking – now, make sure you read the label, but a lot of times we're planting at – if we're planting a a white clover, durano or or ladino or some sort of clover like that, if you're wanting pure stands of straight clover, you're looking anywhere from 6 to 10 pounds per acre. Um, But we plant so many mixtures that a lot of times we're looking at 2 to 3 pounds. But make sure you read – the label and understand what what seed rate they recommend and plant at that um, at that range anything else frost seeding that we're missing here um, i don't think really so. you're looking for
1: anywhere from like four to six expected frosts left it's kind yeah. of like that great window because you're going to have that again that freezing thawing action um, within that top layer of soil so make sure you've got a couple of those frost even even if you have a couple of
0: couple of inches of snow left and oh. it's starting to melt that's a great time perfect time one thing you want to possibly avoid is if you already have saturated soil and you're getting a big forecast of rain coming try to avoid frost seeding yeah um, just because a lot of that seed since it is such a small seed it can wash away
1: it basically is already saturated so it pulls up on top mm-hmm. and then washes off and down so consider what the soil is currently and and the forecast in the coming days.
0: Yeah, And if you're down south, you may already be past the point of frost seeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You may be getting ready to plant your spring. Oh, you minors. blew it. Yeah, So <laughs> you already missed it. You done screwed up. You done done it. Uh, when it comes to soil samples, we didn't even talk about that process, but you can find it a lot of places. And you're as- actually going to hear Matt and I talk about later in this podcast, kind of the creation of Land of and the reason for kind of the overall lifetime of building this brand. Because of things, uh, I, I don't even want to give it away. You're just gonna to have to stick around and, and hear it. But um, when it comes to soil samples, it's a very simple process. You're just getting a soil probe, a shovel. Try to follow, uh, basically, locate where you're going to send your soil samples and follow their method of how they want you to do it and the correct amount. I know it's so simple, but like, don't send them too
1: little. Or, or, too or, much. Too, or too much. Like, they don't yeah. need a five gallon bucket of soil. They're not going to get that from plot. us. We <laughs> no. Can't, we, can't. we can't afford to lose that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, don't send them a bunch of rocks, too, in your mix. Um, so, basically, follow their recommendations. Take an overall average of the field. Um, so, a figure eight or whatever, kind of random. Yeah, when it says
1: average, it means like just random spots random. throughout the field.
0: Yeah. So, don't just take it from your best spot, your highest yield producing corner. Make sure you get it from all around the prop or the food plot and send it into your lab and uh, make sure you get it tested and really be looking, hopefully send it to a lab where you can find out the or- organic matter percentage. That's a huge, important factor in your soil health. And uh, so make sure you've got that and move forward with improving the soil on your farm. You know,
1: another really big thing that happens in March, and this is occurring right now throughout a lot of the south and really getting to the midwest prescribed fire
0: oh yeah mm-hmm. huge 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 window that would be when you asked me what's the one thing and i said soil samples fire would be the next thing
1: oh yeah this is this is that window that time frame a lot of times you're you're in between um rains but this this time of year you were really looking at humidity because it tends to lower and drop um, making ideal burning conditions. We had a couple clients actually texting over the weekend saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm burning, I'm burning." And we we're kind of checking in, "Hey, how's it going? What's the success?" And just huge successes um, in those in those fires. And it's so fun seeing plans and hearing from clients that you know you've been out a year ago, reaching back out. Hey, burn,
0: burn one season one is is underway. So it's it's super cool. Uh, so like you mentioned, down south, it's really popular right now, and. It's going to be picking up in the northern states in the coming month, basically, and uh, yeah. I, I, I another thing, if well, it's not just fire that you can be doing right now, but if you're in an area where um, it's still maybe you're up north, there's preparations for prescribed fire. There's putting in fire, fire line. line. That's what. As soon as we get done with this podcast today, the little bit of time we have, I'm shooting to the family farm and I'm blowing in fire line and gonna get ready because we have a big burn scheduled in the next month hopefully just got to get that fire line built so you can be disking in fire lines or
1: dozing fire lines or blowing out fire lines yep. whatever you need to do to get
0: burn units ready get a fire break established so yeah we definitely going to be establishing fire lines that's part of it for us is disking in light disking mm-hmm. just slightly turning the soil getting a fire break in a in an old field and then going in the woods and blowing out all the leaves and sticks and anything that's flammable and, and basically establishing a nice fire break. And we're going to burn probably, I don't know, 50, 60 acres in there. So pretty good, pretty good chunk. With and it's going to be... lots of cedars. With lots of cedars, <laughs> lots of down cedars. So there's going to be a lot of embers and a, and a lot of turkeys in there this spring, Long we bunch. hope. So that's something we're really looking forward to. So prescribed fire, a big thing you can do this time of the year. Um, and we really stress big thing you can do you can improve a lot of acres a lot, in a short lot of period of time just by burning so um and also and kind of when it comes to fire we've mentioned it so many times but it's important to note that you can be burning your timber um of course understand fire we recommend going to your um government organizations usda and RCS, conservation here in missouri and going through the training process of understanding prescribed fire, a lot of states have that available for landowners. So you can take that and and uh, understand fire a little bit more. We were we actually worked pro- a property this past weekend. And a landowner had, uh, had gone through the schooling um, to yeah. understand prescribed fire. So it's really important that you take that into consideration. Fire is definitely something you need to know what's going on and don't just drop matches and let things happen. Don't do it old school way, yeah, I've heard too many stories. Old school way was drive around and throw matches out the window and in ditches and just let it drive go. off now, don't do that too many, too many things going That's on. That's why now, we so. have
1: the mindset that we do now across much of the country and trying to re educate
0: people on fire. But yeah, when you say mindset, he's talking about everybody's scared of fire because yes. back in the day there wasn't much fear, and they just burned places up, so definitely understand it, take the classes. Do whatever you can do to educate yourself on prescribed fire. And, and and also, when you're educating yourself, understand that if you're in a closed canopy forest, uh, if your property is closed canopy forest, that you're only going to get so much benefit um, from a prescribed fire. There's going to be a lot more benefit if you can open up that canopy, remove some species of trees that aren't valuable, um, and or if they're too thick. And if, even if you have 100% oaks, or that's yeah, probably not happening but you have a large majority of oaks there's probably a good chance a lot of those oaks are hollow or aren't going to have a lot of value to you so go ahead and get some of those knocked back and and open up that canopy so you can get more undergrowth and and really have some benefits with prescribed fire then so
1: the the next thing we're going to talk about is is fescue we always talk about the blanket that it you know it has across the landscape and if you if you stop and consider a closed canopy forest it really is a blanket for additional browse forage cover sapling regeneration in the timber i mean that's all it really is it's simply blocking the sun mm-hmm. and and if we don't remove it like we would or open it excuse me um to a certain degree you're gonna have limited production off the ground we used the is. analogy
0: this weekend that basically close canopy forests or non-native cool season grasses like fescue or smooth brome Um, or I guess you could do warm season grasses that are non-native, like uh, Bahia Bahia or uh, what's a, uh, Bermuda grass. Mm -hmm. Those are all serving as, almost, think of them as weed mats, but they're... Like you would lay down in a garden. You would lay down in the garden to prevent weeds from growing, but they're doing that to your native species. So picture the black rolled out weed mat is laid across your landscape preventing your natives from growing. And... In areas where it's not as thick or in the weed mat, you get some tears or holes. You get weeds that shoot up through there. That, that's what we see a lot of times with the native grasses or native forbs is where the non-native cool seasons are growing, they're, they're, the natives are growing. So mm-hmm. you'll see just or, fescue and you'll see natives poking up just like a weed in a weed mat. So, Or where a tree fell down in the timber. That yeah. tree it dies or or gets
1: snapped off by a tornado or ice or something and it falls over and then in that spot that break in that canopy you actually have natives that pop up on the ground level because you're getting sunlight. It's it's that same process of of basically allowing and getting the the right conditions for natives to grow. And why are natives so important? Because that's what deer eat.
0: Yeah, that's just what they do eat or use as cover when you say native and so it's deer it's native grasses yeah. so forbs
1: everything cover for quail everything this goes on and on and on yes. i know we beat that dead horse all the time but it's like we really need to we we haven't beat it enough because obviously there's so much okay. acre so many acres that just need to be addressed they need to be um have attention drawn to them so yeah. next one spraying fescue yeah Cool season grasses, this is a good time um, to be able to do that. And throughout much of the the country, either it is beginning to green up, is green, or in the next couple weeks will be greening up. And that is
0: the cool season fescue grass or if, smooth brome. If you're down south, it's probably already green. Here in the Midwest, it's just starting. In the northern states, it's probably not there yet. So... In this instance, you're
1: preparing, you've sprayed or you're preparing to spray or you're spraying now to remove that blanket, to remove that tarp, that weed mat off the ground to let the natives grow. Yeah. And and it can be done in um, what Craig Harper says, odd areas, these are little edges yeah. around food plots or, or corners of pastures that are fenced off, whatever it may be, any area that you have
0: permission to remove this cool season grass do it a it, lot of times we see that on the edge of food plots oh for sure And we always talk about trying to improve the edge and you have a food plot and then you have 10 yards or a, a, like a little slope that's got something growing but a lot of times it, maybe it's shrubs or younger trees but then you have fescue growing and so it's as simple as just spraying that maybe dropping a few of those sh- uh those shrubs or young trees creating more of a, a softer edge between the the tall mature timber and the food plot and then you're going to have a lot of ragweed and other stuff so not only are you going to remove that on the edge um to create better cover but also there's going to be more food available to help offset the pressure or take some of the pressure off your food plot that's what we saw this weekend we
1: saw all the edges basically was it used to be a pasture and on the fingers that that went out into kind of the timbered areas, the flatter spots, the flatter spots that he could plant, they were all food plot. And then the edges, they had autumn olive, autumn olive growing up. But much of that underneath was all cool season grass. So it was like non beneficial, non beneficial. Let's cut that, treat that, and then spray the fescue out. And and now we've got a a great edge.
0: Yeah, along the food plot. So he's gonna basically now, because now till the end of March, he's gonna spray that um, fescue and get it killed out and let rag most. It was it was interesting because he had that one spot that was sprayed. He was gonna implement food plot on another little flat spot and had sprayed the fescue. He sprayed the fescue. Ragweed was growing up. Queen Anne's lace. All kinds of goldenrod. All kinds of beneficial forbs. And uh, it was a great indicator that wow. That's what happens once you remove fescue. And so he's going to spray that out soon. And then as he's going to have to probably hold off just because of the the greening up of the of the uh, autumn olive, he can't treat it yet. So he's going to have to hold off on that and then come back after green up and cut those things and treat them with tordon on and have a fantastic edge. So it went from bad edge to a fantastic edge, all with just, Two types of management. There there was that light bulb,
1: though, when he saw, oh, I, I didn't actually implement this into a food plot, that strip that he had sprayed out, but there was the light bulb when he could see, okay, this fescue was a foot tall, maybe, right now, at this time of year, oh, whereas the the actual Forbes, the goldenrod, the ragweed, that come back was five foot tall, and the, the difference was like, oh, I get it. It's yeah. so visual. It's so easy to see. That was an accident, but I actually taught myself something in that accident that the rest of this stuff needs to go. Needs to
0: be gone. Yeah. It was uh It, it was definitely a learning experience for all of us. You know, I, I thought about the two instances where he sprayed one time. And there was a little bit of, because I don't think he was, I don't know. Not a know, great hot batch of, of glyphosate, yes. And then he had the other spot where he had sprayed multiple times, and it was just head high, goldenrod, and all kinds of great things. So um, definitely going to help his property by removing that fescue, as as yours. Um, hopefully not in your grandpa's pasture, though. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that, so. Anyway, uh, old field management, there's a couple of places on, on Family Farm that come to mind where we've got a couple different species of native grasses clumped up trying to come through, and then you still have fescue. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to spray out that fescue in the coming weeks. Whenever it gets good and green, it's photosynth- photosynthesizing, and, and we can spray it and get it killed out, probably run a fire through there just to help speed up the process and have an even better edge, more beneficial uh, for cover and food right at the edge of our uh, food plot. So that's definitely something. You know, I'm going to retract from my comment I made earlier about what I would. the one thing I'd do this time of the year. The, I, like the one thing? I said I would do soil samples. Yeah. I'll probably say I'd rather do old field management just because there's only two windows um, of the year that you can spray out non-native cool season grasses yeah. like smooth brome and fescue, and that's March or Kind of depends. It could be February in the south. It could be April in the north. Um, but that there's that window, and then there's that same window during the fall. So and it could be October or it could be November.
1: The windows there because if you have native grasses or forbs growing up through the fescue during the other times of the growing season, you would kill those as well. So these are the windows that the natives are actually dormant and the cool seasons are still growing. So that's why these two windows are are in place. And we recommend when controlling the cool season grasses.
0: And you could look at using a different herbicide. We, a lot of times use glyphosate, but you could definitely know, identify the grass species and the natives in the area. And there's a chance you might use plateau as well. So definitely identify your species and, and, and we're coming up, we're building towards it, but, we're going to have a podcast devoted to different books and, and articles and PDFs that you can locate to learn more about the species of trees or grasses or shrubs or forbs um, just so you can be right there with us as far as identifying what's growing on your property and what you need to do to improve it or get rid of it. So
1: Another huge thing that this time of year is, is perfect for is developing basically your year plan For your food plots. Yeah. And basically tallying up acres of, okay, this is what's going to be planted here in this food plot. I'm getting this, or I'm, I'm changing this food plot because I've, I've rethought about it or this ground's not good for it. I have had bad success for, for this species. So really making a solid plan for your food plots this time of year will allow you to better prepare for your, maybe additional amendments that need to be made, what your soil sample says,
0: and then, Basically ordering seed and getting mm-hmm. that ready. You don't. Know, this isn't in our notes, but it brought up an interesting point of how many times, we saw it this past weekend, but when you're preparing for your food plot blends or your food plot and you're like, what can I do? And you come up on a the question of, okay, this food plot is always saturated. There's always water and it's mm-hmm. kind of marshy. But you look at it and you're like, that's a ridge top. Why is it always marshy? And and I think this is an interesting point or a, a point that if you're in a situation like that and you're like, boy, what can I plant that can have wet feet? Well, first, locate the site and go, what, what about this makes it have water standing? And the instance that comes to mind is it was the fact of the practices that they were using and the fact that they were planting a species... That was a monoculture. Mm -hmm. And, for example, when you think about soil and and the process of planting, they were, in fact, just disking it every year or disking every couple of years, completely turning over the soil and then planting a monoculture and understanding how the soil works and diversity can work and root systems. What they were planting was actually clover. It didn't have a huge root system. So they're planting it, disking, planting, and the soil infrastructure was basically destroyed every time they disk. Yeah,
1: it had no ability to infiltrate water.
0: The water, instead of going through the soil profile, through the root systems, and all the other micro, back, basically all the other life in the soil profile, mycorrhizal fungi, everything like that was destroyed with the disking to where basically water had no place to go but set on top.
1: Until it evaporated and a little bit soaked in, a little but bit. Once it would just sit; it would it would it would not move through the soil like the natural processes and soil that's undisturbed or that has diversity, that has a root system that's always active and always
0: growing. And what what came back? They had clover, but that you were seeing so much sedge mm-hmm. and rushes growing in there because they can adapt to that; they can have those wet feet. So ways you can avoid or Or improve it if you're in a food plot that has this scenario, water standing on it, and you're like, how can I improve that? One thing is to plant diversity. Things that have different root systems, maybe deeper root systems, to where they can bust through that hard pan and now start draining, pulling that water from up top and pulling it down deep into the soil profile. And not. Disking. Not disking or plowing. That's a huge yeah. thing. If, if if you're in a situation where, man, there's water standing here, how can I prevent this? Look at a finding a different way to plant. No-till drill. Um, drilling in your species to where you're not destroying that soil infrastructure. And so that's a huge thing. Or, or maybe broadcasting. you're broadcasting, cultivating. Or uh, there's different ways. There's not. J- there's so many ways you can plant a food plot rather than just disking and broadcasting. If, if you're gonna
1: go through the whole process of clearing land and planting, and and basically your end goal is top quality forage and the most forage that that open area can hold, and you're continuing to disc and continuing to plant the monocultures, you're you're not. You're not achieving that goal. You're not reaching that area's potential because you're you're limiting its success.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think of the simplest way to put this. And when you think about a when you think about soil, um, and bear with me. I know it sounds boring when I say soil, but bear with me, and I'll try and keep this as simple as possible. But you have soil, and then you plant something, and it, as its roots infiltrate that soil, it's making tunnels and it's making ways for water and nutrients to cycle through the soil profile. But then over time, you're going to get a lot more uh, earthworms and other types of species that are going to tunnel through and create more tunnels for water to move through. But every time you disk, you completely erase that and pack it back down to where it has to start over. Roots have to infiltrate that soil profile. Earthworms have to find new tunnels and build new tunnels. But if you don't destroy that, you can transfer more water and nutrients through that soil profile down into the deeper part of 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 the soil.
1: It's so hard for everyone to really understand the importance because what we're talking about, this life, this biotic life in the soil is so small and you don't see it that you don't think it has an impact. But it has an incredible impact and it plays a huge, huge role. It is, again, the foundation of of success in growing and harvesting. And I don't... The foundation of life. Yeah. And, and that's where that's where it starts. So... Even though we can't see it, even though we can't like with the naked eye, we have to understand it and appreciate it for what it does. And it's another basically life form that has to be managed, that has to be respected. And we've often talked about kind of disking as let's say there's like a little town in the Midwest and every single year it's in Tornado Alley. And this is comparing your, your food plot to this little town. Every single spring it gets storms and, you know, tornado comes through, wipes out that town, just levels it. And in that next year, it begins to rebuild itself. And same thing with like that food plot. You come in with a disc and you disc it and you just destroy it, level of the life that it had in that soil. And then you play and it starts to try and rebuild basically all the, the, the diversity within the soil, the microorganisms, First thing that comes bacteria. back
0: is going to be bacteria. And if it takes a little bit longer for mycorrhizal fungi to grow. So it needs multiple things It needs present. multiple things because one feeds the other as far as bacteria and fungi. But the first thing to come back after disking is going to be bacteria. And that serves as more of a predator than a prey. And it, it feeds on the fungi. So basically, whenever it comes back, if it's the first thing to come back, it's waiting for the little bit of fungi to grow And it attacks it and starts eating it before the fungi can actually build up to a population that can withstand the bacteria predating on it. So no
1: matter what, that tornado is coming through or that disc is coming through, leveling, and you're in a rebuilding process through this next year. And then guess what happens next year the same time? Tornado comes through, this comes through, and whatever success or whatever rebuilding, whatever infrastructure that you had had and replaced back in that town or back into that soil is crushed and you start all over again. I don't understand that process.
0: A tornado comes through, wipes out the houses. The first thing come back is bacteria, which is the predator. So you've got rapists and murderers and thieves and everybody coming back in the form of predators and then the next year you get a few you get a few more beneficial fungi or prey, and then you have a, another tornado come through and knocks out levels everything. The first thing to come back is predators again, and over time you're destroying and, and not allowing the prey species to come back on a more regular basis as far as mycorrhizal fungi and other beneficial species. So that's why you need to understand soil life and what happens every time you disk it. I've, re- I've read it best uh, in a book that I'm reading right now, but when you think about soil and disking and plowing, it's you're moving soil a little bit over time, a little bit of erosion, a little bit of moving the soil with the disking. Over time, on a year-to-year basis, you don't notice the change. But when you look at it 10 years in time, 20 years in time, and you've moved it, uh, the soil, let's say you move it an inch every year, over 20 years you've moved it quite a bit. Over 100 years, you've moved it a, a huge bit. And so, trying to fix that before you make this process over the over a long term is what we're talking about. You've
1: probably seen it across fields, like fields that are like, I've been playing for a long time, and you have those hedgerows that are still in between the fields. The hedgerows are so much higher. <laughs> they sit up higher yeah. than, than the rest of the actual field. You're like, man, I kind of stepped down into this field. I
0: think, I'm trying to remember who it was that told me this story that he saw this field that had a cemetery out in the middle of it. And they had been plowing and disking every year. All around it. All around it. And as he drove by, he looked, and that cemetery, set. he said it was a good 10 inches above mm-hmm. the surrounding field. And uh, that kind of goes into the story later on that I'll share that I learned the hard way from. So anyway, we talked about planting diversity and not doing so much plowing and disking to improve the soil. So as you're preparing for your food plots this spring, think about that in an aspect of what you can do to improve the land as well as the soil for long-term benefits. So think about you know, what we're doing right now is trying to consider what do we want to try? We don't we try to always experiment and plant new things and try new things to who knows, maybe we'll find something even more Maybe it'll be even greater than what we originally thought um, we had figured out. So, we're going to be planting a bunch of different stuff this spring. Stay tuned because we have a big announcement towards the end of the podcast. But, um, going to yeah, be the,
1: the other thing for, for March fruit trees. Fruit trees are this is a big window for fruit trees, whether you're planting and pruning too. Yeah. Uh, establishing a, an, an orchard, an area that, you know, I want fruit trees. That's a long term investment. Um, so either you can establish, or if you already have them, it's time to go and prune. Yeah. And, and that's a huge, huge process. That, that's a whole other podcast devoted to fruit trees, grafting, and pruning. How to prune fruit trees. Um, but that's, this is a window. This is a window to try and hit that and prepare basically that plant, that tree, for optimal growth during this next growing season.
0: Yeah. Planting also. Uh, and so that's another thing you could do. Consider what you can plant as far as a fruit tree that's going to be beneficial throughout the year but also really beneficial that's the biggest thing for us is what can we plant that's going to bear fruit during hunting season so um, for for me i always i always think about when i'm hunting over fruit trees i think of arkansas black fruit um, that dropped during november here in the midwest and so consider what you're going to plant consider what you need to plant so that fruit tree can bear more fruit uh, as far as a cross pollinator and uh, different species that you can add to where You have something, as always, diversity is king. So maybe you have something in your orchard that you're going to hunt over to where there's something dropping throughout the hunting season. So there's something dropping September, something dropping October, something dropping November. Maybe there's something dropping through the summer months. Just keep deer conditioned to coming into that orchard. So. Yeah, and, and, and not just apples, but you think about persimmons and pears and all peaches, other kinds of yeah. peaches. So all other kinds of things you can plant. And then you go into the nut-bearing trees. So mm-hmm. I, I The list goes on and on. On and on, and, and fruit trees and, or I guess, all kinds of planting. Mass-producing trees. I, I would definitely say uh, do your homework. But consider, I, I like, it's a long-term investment, and you're not going to get, turnaround or production within the first couple of years but it's something that i really enjoy so consider planting some fruit trees this spring and uh in this month um that are going to be beneficial years and years down the road so anyway got anything
1: else i think it's important to switch gears here at this point and because we get it so so often how do how did you guys get started what did you guys do what was a pivotal point in your life where it was, I'm going to go down this route and devote my life to conservation education on, you know, habitat, on wildlife, um, because... I we're extremely blessed to be able to do what we do and meet so many great folks and and travel the country visiting properties um, meeting landowners and trying to get their properties to reach their objectives and and again that is such a such a blessing to be able to do it um so the question often comes up how what did what did you guys do or 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 tell me the story of the time where you just realized, hey this is this is what I want to do. This this instance, this situation just shaped me that said I'm going down this route and I'm not looking back and I'm going to I'm going to figure this stuff out. Um and each one of us has a kind of a different story or a different perspective on what it was that kind of shaped ourselves into pursuing um and furthering our education on conservation, habitat, land management, wildlife, biology. Uh, ecology, everything that basically allows us to do what we do. Um, for for me, again, I, I think we've we've talked about our education and what we both you know, I'm a biology major, concentration wildlife mate, uh, concentration wildlife management minor. But Adam is a ag major, and, it, and that that though is is a very brief introduction to I guess the education and again what shaped us as consultants um, and podcasters, whatever you want to call us. Um, And for me, I remember growing up, again, I grew up in a farming background, cousins, uncle farmed, dad farmed, cattle farmed, hay and crop farming, but we were all hunters. And of course, as a young age, I was so interested in hunting. And then as I got older and could really help out on the farms, I began to question so many things and I know I probably annoyed my dad a bunch with all the questions that I had um about whether it was processes of of okay why are, why are cattle um why are we feeding them this versus that why are we grazing this right now um and then that goes on to the crops as well I always question that and always my questioning I guess attitude or perspective went on to question things during hunting too you know hey why why are deer running this time why are why are we chasing turkeys and why are they gobbling right now what does all this mean how does it all correlate and I just always was questioning and and my dad didn't always have the answers so then that made me think okay I need I need to figure it out I just had that I guess yearning for an answer and I was I always questioned it what I would read to. Because sometimes, you know... And Adam, Adam, I know you have this same this same idea, mindset, that you don't always believe everything you read. <laughs> ah, that goes to a
0: big part of my stories. I'll let you finish before so, I share mine.
1: <laughs> so I would... If, if the answer wasn't there, or if I didn't even believe the answer that I was hearing, I'd just go and dive further. And that was researched through, um, as boring as they sound, peer-reviewed articles or stuff. And I just... Force myself to sit down and read them and understand. You know the biology of a white-tailed deer, the biology of a rut. Why why they rut at this time? What were the influences? What were the factors that made them do this versus um, other periods of the year? So on and so forth. And it just made me do my own research and, and force me to figure it out. I, I remember the one thing that that I, I asked my dad when we were cutting hay and we would cut. The hay, in May to early June, and we were scalping it. I mean, we were cutting to like four inches, maybe of of vegetation left, so we could get the most most grass to make the most bales, right? And I just I just thought about it for a little bit, and as you're going round and round, Ted and Hay, you you have a lot of thoughts. You're just sitting there, and I began to think, why are we cutting it so low? Isn't it like harder for that hay to regrow if we're taking more of it, and I just asked them, why? Why don't we just raise the deck on the on the uh, on the mower and the cutter, and and see what happens? And it was kind of a, no, are you kidding me? Well, then we don't get as many bales. We don't. We wouldn't want to do that. And then that forced me to go in and, and research. And it was the understanding that when you're taking more, you're taking basically the the factory that produces the more grass. You're cutting that. You're removing that. Um, and, and it just never added up to me. So that's, that's just one of, of so many instances that I questioned it. I, ed- I, I learned, I researched, and then I educated myself on maybe a different perspective or a different technique that can be utilized that in the long run, although it seems counterproductive initially is actually going to give you more and that's where rotational grazing kind of comes into things um, and and planting food plots with diverse root systems and diverse um, forages for different creatures to basically achieve different goals. And I think that, again, that story is just a one simple analogy that um, allowed me to just go in, dive deep and educate myself on what the heck I was learning, what the heck I was going to do with my life. And ultimately it is the relationship between the land and wildlife understanding that balance that that just fueled me adam i know you've got your multiple stories (laughs) and again they (sighs) vary a little bit but the end the end thing the end result is the exact same two different paths of of information or questioning got us here
0: yeah i i think you know when i dive into my story on why I do what I do or what motivates me to, what mo, what kind of sent me, launched me as an arrow into this direction was, uh, unfortunately, a lot of, uh, and we talked about it earlier in the podcast, but information and things out there that, that we read and wholeheartedly accepted and said, okay, that's the way. There were common practices, though. Yeah, and, and, and it made sense. Kind of at that time is like well it was in that magazine so let's do it it must be true and and a couple stories come to mind but um, for me one of the biggest things and and Matt I've shared this kind of one liner with you before and we kind of try to always keep it in mind and be part of the as a lot of our one liners that we use but this one was be who you needed as a kid Mm -hmm. and so for me I think back of who I needed when I was ten years old. And starting to kind of want to do things for hunting. Um, and the things I read and took in and said, okay, that's the way it is. I read it in that magazine. One of those was it was talking about never plant diversity because if you plant multiple species, they're all going to try and rob nutrients from each other. No, nope. <laughs> And we, so at that point we were like, okay, let's mix in oats and let's mix in brassicas and let's mix in all this. And then we read that article and was like, oh, man, we're doing it wrong. Oh, that's so stupid we, of us. We need to plant just turnips here and just wheat there and just oats there. And so we stepped away and started planting monocultures. And it was like, okay, let's let's do that. And then we also were planting our food plots the way Paul planted food plots. Mm-hmm. And that was we broke out the two-bottom plow. We discs. We harrowed. We did it all. And we did that for multiple years. If you, weren't, if you years. weren't on that
1: tractor, you weren't doing nothing.
0: Yeah. And and I think back at the, I've said this a lot in podcast, I think about all the time it took to get those food plots in. Oh, yeah. And so the first year, we would do that. We would plow and disc, harrow, and then we'd plant our food plot. And first year, it'd be like, man, look how awesome that is. And by year four, we were like, man, we can't grow a food plot nearly like we used to. And then you you hit your peak super early. Oh man! And then just so we started trying to figure out why we weren't having success with the food plots, we realized, uh oh, we've messed up. We we
1: done done it now. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And so that really motivated us into and myself to just really think about, uh oh, we need. There's got to be a better way, and there's got to be a way that we can do this on a budget. And so going back to that phrase, "Be who I needed as a kid." That really motivated me, and as I got older, to go okay, I want to understand this whole land management on a budget, because that's what we were doing on a budget. But Heck I yeah. need to do Heck it yeah. on with sm- s- small implements, small acreage, around cows, around other livestock. I need to try and understand how I can manage land and approve land with already some sort of management or some sort of other type of in that case it was an operation a cattle operation how i can improve the land with cattle still being on it and that really motivated me to say okay i'm going to understand this and i'm gonna put that information out or help as many people and at that point it was like well maybe i can just help my neighborhood out help my friends out never really understanding that man one day we'll have a podcast and we'll be putting out videos and um, helping people across the country do this. and But that, I, I think that's when it comes down to, um, we talk about this as passion, finding your passion in life. I heard that as a kid. Find your passion, find your passion. And then also find a way to make a job out of that passion. And fortunately for us, we found a way to do that. But the other thing is a lot some people don't ever find that. But for us, we were able to find a way to make money doing our passion. And that is when you have tunnel vision and you work hard to get that Don't out there. Stop. And so, you, sure, we talk about it. You may think we talk about it for an hour before and then we record the podcast. Then we go about our, our day. It really never stops for us. And so, mm-hmm. for me, when I going as a kid, it was like, okay, be who I needed as a kid. There's always something to learn. It's lifelong learning and trying to improve the techniques we use. And so... For me, you know, we record a podcast, then we consult, we do the real estate. Then when we get free time from all that, we go to our own farms and do it again just because it's enjoyment.
1: And then you you lie in bed reading more stuff and dream about it. And then you get up and it's funny because, like, I know I should probably have more than just a a narrow mind of land management and habitat and stuff. But I wake up and I start thinking, like, immediately – That was a cool dream. Or I was just thinking about this last night when I was going to bed, and I just continue that thought, and it's like such a narrow mind, which I know (laughs) our wives are like, gosh, they're so dumb and stupid, but it's just probably because we have such a narrow mind of what occupies our minds, and I don't don't know.
0: When I was (sighs) growing up, as I chaired one of the very first podcasts at 12 years old, I realized I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player, so then I started focusing on – um the hunting side of the world and land management and uh you know that was i always heard the phrase with baseball cuz i'm still a big baseball fan but you can't be, you can't not be romantic about baseball i'm the same way with land i can't no. like i have this like huge fa- love fascination yeah and with the natural world and and definitely the natural world as far as in its native state mm, right. and trying to re trying to replicate that trying to replicate nature the way it was managed and then also manage in the same aspect for hunting you know we often talk about being oh I
1: would have loved to have been born back in the 1800s 1700s and seen this landscape and just seen it in its glory but you know what really fuels us is the fact that we we aren't we weren't born in that and we we've educated ourselves on what actually should be present and and our job is to now try and educate others and get it back to that point. So understanding how the different ecosystems work and how complex each one is, but it's complex because it is the backbone for another and they all lean on one another to make this big grand scheme of things work. But, I think, honestly, in recent years, us as a, a society, we had to break things. We had to destroy things for us to really understand its complexity and why it worked so well.
0: Failure is the best teacher. Exactly. And so, and that kind of goes with what really motivated me as a young age was, man, we were failing hardcore with what we were doing. And so it was like, let's get out there and start And help somebody else avoid this huge mistake that we've done. And for me it was like,
1: there's gotta be a better way. Like what why are we doing it this way? Because I just questioned, why are we doing it this way? What's what's something else we could do? And then that just forced oh my gosh, there was there originally there was this incredible way, but we've we've diverted from that. We've gone away from that. So let's let's try and repair what we fixed. And and create a better landscape. A repair better what we res- broke. Yeah, You
0: said repair what we fixed. Oh, huh. repair, repair what, what we broke.
1: And fix it with these new techniques and this new mindset that we have to adopt. And that's, I think, in a nutshell, what has gotten us where we are and, and answers that question of, well, where'd you guys start? What'd you guys do? And to me, that's it. Yeah. When did
0: you start this? Well, when I was born, I guess. (laughs)
1: Yeah. You know, college obviously plays a huge role in things, but it hasn't played the most important, I think, honestly. Uh,
0: You can look at me and say, college played a great role, but it taught me nothing about habitat because I'm an ag major. I wasn't in classes studying trees or studying plants. I, I didn't have those classes. What I had was... Animal science, animal health, animal disease. I had all this agriculture background to where it's still great. I learned a lot. But really at the core of what we preach can't isn't taught well, at like, a university. It's
1: not that it can't, it just isn't no. at this time typically taught.
0: No in,
1: in that setting. And that's why even in college, I remember thinking, I've I've been really fortunate enough to live really an outdoorsy life lifestyle and you know, I, I hear, I don't know, professors say something and I was like, "Ah, that just doesn't seem, doesn't seem right. That doesn't really add up. And I, I don't know. I just, again, I'd question it. I'm sure I annoyed the heck out of some people when I was growing up, but it allowed me just to dive deeper and say, is that, is that really right? Let me, let me, let me try and figure that thing out. And, um, from there, just again, it just kept molding, kept molding. And, um, searching for answers whether whether it was we did it wrong the first way or we just figured there's a better way out there or maybe even a more cost-effective way whatever the process was it's just developed
0: I, over I time when it comes to trying to get the biggest most efficient landscape the biggest uh, the most cost-saving but productive landscape for so long, we tried to do things and say, "Okay, we need to do this, this, and this, and this." And over time, it, it came real clear to me that, oh, I can try and do, I can try and take this species and put it in an area that it shouldn't be, mm-hmm. naturally speaking, and it's not going to be very. It's going to be productive. limited success. And or I can take, and I can take what God has given us in as far as the natives and the landscape, and say, yeah. That's a pretty doggone good system. That's the let's best. Let's system. enhance it. And so then it comes to trying to take us, and this is part of our consulting, is where we try to really understand what was native to that area, what was the natural landscape, and knowing that that's the most productive and the most efficient landscape for that for, in that area and try to replicate that. So a lot of times we go to here in Missouri, we go to these landscapes and it's, it was once glade, which was most, well, a lot of wildflowers and grasses and not cedars and, and scattered oak woodlands and, and some hickories mixed in and other species. And it's like, huh, that's not here. Let's get it back to that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the things we do is trying to understand the natives, uh, and, build off of that versus try to build it our own way and plant things that aren't to that area. So for instance, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. If I saw this on one of the habitat managers post was it was a, it was a prairie type setting mm-hmm. and they wanted to plant a species that wasn't native to that prairie. Yeah. And that's going to be a struggle from the get go of planting a species that's not adapted to that landscape and try to get maximum production out of that species when it's not in its native landscape. Right. That's a that's a huge problem. In
1: that instance, how are you supposed to manage both of those at the same time? Because one run requires something completely different that'll ultimately destroy that that tree that was supposed to be planted because you're supposed to maintain the prairie with fire, but the fire that tree isn't suitable they were, they for were, that
0: for that environment. They were wanting to plant cedar. Which we know cedar can grow just about anywhere and it grows through a lot of prairie. But because that prairie, if we want maximum production, it needs fire, mm-hmm. which cedar can't handle the fire. That's why there wasn't many cedars back in the day. And so just understanding that is a huge part of what we do and, and really what motivates me to do what I do. Yep. Um, and I think back to what you were saying about um, kind of why we do this or whatever, um, but for me it was always, it's just trying to get maximum production. And for example... If you're going to plant a non-native, you're going to plant a bunch of food plots and all this stuff, it, it's going to take money. Um, we certainly plant food plots, and that's a big one of our big announcements coming up. But we try to plant these species. Maybe it's not even food plots. It's just grass or shrubs, and we're trying to fertilize and do all this stuff. It takes more money. But instead, we could just look what's native and enhance that and have fantastic habitat.
1: Fantastic. So. Things that wildlife are so successful in that's what got them here today. And now they're just strictly in many cases in an adaptive environment. They're just having to adapt to what basically the ruckus we've caused. Um, And if we, we, we just understand the fact that you provide them or you provide that ecosystem, that environment that is most conducive, they will, and then return provide basically be as productive as possible that's I just think it here's a another Bottom quick line.
0: story is we look at let's just say screening's a big thing right now everybody wants to plant screens, screens. And, you know, want to screen stuff screen roads screen uh highways screen food plots off whatever and that's when we get to plant and i've seen i saw a guy wanting to plant what was that leland cypress everywhere mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um or they're wanting to plant macanthus grass, or they're wanting to plant those elm trees, elm, or willow hybrids. Oh, okay, yeah. And they're wanting to plant all these non-natives and, and because they think they're going to do great. But a lot of times, those non-natives that are like that, if they're not sterile, they end up becoming an invasive. That's where a lot of our invasive came from, is bringing a non-native into an area that we thought was great, and it ended up taking over. Or, or uh, asking it to do a
1: job it shouldn't, in an environment it shouldn't be
0: in. Yeah. and And then basically, you're trying to manage with fire and those probably not going to handle it but you think about all that and all these non-natives you could plant and it's a simple thing okay well it's not great habitat because it, there's the natives don't know what it is and is they're not going to be able to adapt to it most likely or you could plant a mix of grasses and shrubs and trees in those same areas and have fantastic screening but also fantastic habitat and what was already growing in that landscape. So you could mix in different shrubs, hawthorns, gray dogwoods, whatever, uh, plums, and then a mix of native grasses, a switchgrass and big blue stem and Indian grass and little blue stem and all these other spe- forbs that go there too, um, and have fantastic habitat, fantastic screening, and beneficial to all species native to that area. Hundred percent. Why wouldn't we do it? I I don't understand. Why wouldn't we? Because it's it's this
1: simple. It's not. It may be not not be as easy. Or the the goal, the end goal, is reached maybe at a little bit slower pace. When you plant a Leland Cypress, that sucker grows, man. Yeah. Or macanthus, and you just
0: it's ten foot tall the first year, and you Done. say, Wow, that's cool. Done. Check that off the list. But no, no. There's there's a better way, and most of the time it's it's. Uh... Replicating nature, we've we've
1: <laughs> we've uh, taken that little, I don't know, segment we were gonna do <laughs> and just ran with it. Yeah, um, but I hope,
0: that's, I hope what, that's why I was a little bit fearful on doing it when yeah. you said, well, "Why don't we do one where we talk about why we do what we do?" And I was like, "Uh oh, I'm just gonna, gonna rant. rant. We're just that's... gonna go."
1: Um, but I, I don't know. I just hope that that was that was beneficial to kind of understand the backstory. I know we we often talk about a lot of the same processes and things but that is why right there in a nutshell and that's how we got there um in our minds so you ready to divulge some of these secrets these these
0: things that we've big announcement we've been holding back on and we've mentioned it over time and we've told people we wanted to build towards it but 2018 we are going to be producing (laughs) short films so we've teamed up with uh, a good friend and i've known him a long time we actually went to college together But Mr. Nathaniel Maddox of Slate and Glass is going to be in full production for us. We're going to make short films 2018 that are... It's going to be an incredible year, guys. A mix of hunting and habitat management, land restoration projects and techniques. We've got a lot of different stuff we're going to cover. We're super pumped about it. First one's probably going to come out, first half of one. We're going to release probably a shorter one in March, and we will be filming a... Uh, a big event later this month down in Mississippi. So um, We're consulting. just so pumped up. Yes. This thing,
1: I don't... If you guys haven't heard of Slate & Glass production, do a little research, do a little homework. They're fantastic. Uh, I'm trying fantastic. to think of how you've
0: seen some of his work. Undivided is a series that he puts together. Um, but he Silence also or produced Co. the Silencer Co. Yep. Harvested Films. Yep. And then he produced... Uh, you may have seen it on Carbon T V, The Disease with Redbeard. He's mm-hmm. the one who produced that. So really fantastic production and uh Top notch. Really high, great. High quality, we have a lot of fun with guy. those guys. So we're gonna we're going to be uh filming a lot of stuff this fall yeah. and summer and throughout the year to put out there. So totally pumped about that. We uh we've got some partners on board and you're gonna see us talk about that in the future, uh in the coming weeks kinda as we unveil each person we're working with and and uh or each company we're working with and we're super pumped about it um i i think last fall we've released that we're going to be doing films and people thought that was that was all that was what the films are going to look like but it was just us filming me producing and it was like man those weren't great i'll be the first one to say it we just wanted people to be aware that we were still hunting and and oh, yeah. uh, just that we weren't in. just consulting so stuff
1: that we could refer back to on a yeah. podcast but so. that that's the beauty of it like when we when we release these films there's going to be a podcast that's going to correlate with the film that's going to go and talk in depth more about the techniques that we that we talked about on the film that you've seen so you have a visual within the film and then us yapping for an hour about what the heck, What you know, the backstory of that um, consulting trip, the backstory of that habitat um, or the techniques that we use to manage that habitat. So it's going to be awesome, and it's going to be um, really fun to kind of deliver and get out there and get everyone's feedback on it. So be watching, be ready. And if you haven't
0: liked the Facebook page yet, that's where you'll see – the films there and our YouTube channel, so go and, and our check website. out Landon Legacy, and it's the and sign, um, and except for Facebook and it's a and yep. d Legacy. So check it out, like it, so you can be right there whenever we release these films. Um, so another big Next big thing, big thing is, uh, as you guys have known, we love. As we talked this half of the podcast about always experimenting techniques and trying different things, and how much we love planting food plots and and uh, experimenting, find different ways to screen and and improve the soil as well as provide beneficial species and forage, um, and that's where we have the announcement that we are now teaming up with Stratton Seed Company out of Arkansas. Uh, that you may not know them because they've been in the ag world for so long, long time. And uh, this, this yeah. is
1: this is not a, a company that's like came oh, up overnight. We're coming, we're coming to the food plot market. Like they've been around, solid, solid base of huge agriculture um, company, seed company yeah. production.
0: And so we are in development with them on some new species blends coming, hopefully this spring. And also, but here's a kind of a key point to catch out. But we all know about Ford soybeans, and uh, they have that available but at probably a price tag um, that you're not ready for.
1: Sticker shock,
0: baby. Yeah, as far as, and in a good way. Yeah, um, I think if you've ever way. tried to plant Ford soybeans that are Roundup ready, um, you're going to be like, oh, wow, okay, those are a little bit pricey, but you're going like, you to <laughs> yeah, you be excited when you see It's like, what's the alternative? Yeah, you guys are going to be excited when you see this. this is this. it. So this definitely, it. Um, there's not a lot of information out there in the, in the food plot blends right now, but it's definitely coming and so you can check it out. But also, with that being said, they're in the process of building up the food plot side of the world, so they are looking for dealers. Yeah, and so true. if this yep. is if you're already a seed dealer somewhere or interested in, in being a seed dealer, reach out to us at info at tv and shoot us your information, and we will definitely put you in contact with them so we can get you lined up to be a seed dealer this spring. With- definitely hoping to hit the market with some... Um, Great blends and great food plot seed that that you guys can use, hopefully throughout the country if we can get dealers and everything set up. But um, we're so, uh, we can't even begin to tell you how excited we are to be working with a company that understands uh, what we look for in seed and are also on the same page. And hopefully we can find a way to make some awesome blends, for some sure, awesome seed um, for you guys to be putting in your food plots.
1: And I I feel like. Because of the, the long history um, that this company has in the ag world, obviously, they, they get it. They understand it. Um, so, so as this is coming out, it's not going to be like a little splash in the food plot world. It's going to be like the wave pool, you know? Like, it's going to hit, and it's going to be awesome. Um, and we're, we're we're excited to be a part of it and working to develop the mixes that are going to uh, achieve the goals that we talk about week in and week out
0: yeah. on this podcast. Great forage, improve soil health, more organic matter, all kinds of great benefits So to not only deer but other species. So boom. We're there it is. We're super excited. Film's coming. Partner's coming. And this week, we're telling you about Stratton Seed Company, so you can check them out and uh, be ready. And be ready for them to come on, too, and talk more in depth about That's the company. Either this next is... week or the coming week or uh, next week or the week after, I should say, to where you guys can uh, check out and understand more about that company and our and their big plans basically with yeah. them. So be prepared. Would you rather?
1: Oh, man, I don't have one prepared, but go ahead. I'll think of one.
0: Um, um, I'm unprepared. And that's what I was. That's why I wrote to that <laughs> not note halfway through the podcast. That's not like, a note. That's just scribble. Would you rather with a question mark? Um, to try and get you thinking about it while you were rambling. So, kindergartner could write better than um, that. Oh, for me, I would say, would you rather go on a great... This will be totally not land habitat related. I'll okay. just ask, would you rather in January go on a big waterfowl hunt or a big quail hunt
1: don't do this to me
0: a big waterfowl hunt in a pothole in kansas or a covey rise in oklahoma oh um just just from a from a
1: experience standpoint i'm going with the quail hunt i love to kill waterfowl don't get me wrong but i've i've been fortunate enough to been on some pretty good hunts but I have not just had the experience of wild birds, covey after covey, limits. and I know Oklahoma can produce it, so I'm going Oklahoma quail. Yeah, okay,
0: for sure. Well, I don't. Everybody knows I'm going with quail. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm
1: not um, even. I don't even get, give me one second here. Let me think of one. Then okay, you do this yeah. on me you and you your chicken keep, scratch there.
0: Keep thinking and. uh I hope everybody's excited for 2018. I know we are. We have some big plans, some big guests coming on, and uh, there's a lot of things in the in the works to where we can have some really big, big uh, names on the podcast to talk about everything from habitat to just hunting. And uh, you know, one thing I'm excited about this this spring, uh, we've got some turkey hunts coming up, and this is my challenge to you all. Turkey season is right around the corner. And as we know, hunter numbers are going down. So it's important that we start introducing people, getting people back out in the woods. So take somebody, my challenge to you, locate a kid or even an adult that hasn't been hunting or hasn't been hunting in a while and take them out to the woods. Get them back out there, introduce them to the great sport of spring turkey season. Even if you don't kill anything, it's all about the experience. So hopefully you get somebody out there, introduce them and get them hooked on the outdoors to where they can start going and taking other people as well.
1: I got it. All right. I think I know the answer, but would you rather this spring kill a long beard right off the roost, be done before the sun even crests the horizon? Or would you rather work one, let him get off the roost, fly down with hens, and call him back up, Nine thirty, ten o'clock.
0: Huh. Well, it all depends on the show. I would suspect that if he came right off the limb and came right in, that there it was just pretty quick, boom, bang, done. Um, but if he's... I, I would like to drag it out as long as I could. <laughs> 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 and yeah. so I'm going to go with the mid-morning kill because I'd much rather do that. So, um and I think about you know I've killed my second bird a lot of years the last the last day yeah um just because I don't know the way it worked out it was like okay last day and so I got to milk every ounce out of, of it season and so yeah I would definitely go with mid morning so anyway. I think that wraps us up this oh, week. I can't wait. Man. A lot of information, hopefully you guys are ready for a lot of different
1: topics. It. So I'm glad if you, if you're still listening, I'm glad you hung on. 2018
0: <laughs> is going to be an exciting year. Hopefully you'll join us throughout the year and as always, please go check us out on Facebook and Instagram, shoot us an email. We love we want to have personal interactions. So send us some emails with some questions. We've had them coming in like crazy lately um send us some more questions would you rather topics would you rather questions all kinds of stuff just reach out to us we'd love to hear from you as always thanks for joining us peace out talk to you next time see ya thanks for listening to another episode
1: of land and Legacy's hunting and habitat management podcast if you like what you hear check us out at landlegacy.tv you can submit a viewer question right there and we're answering on the podcast or find us on facebook and instagram
0: Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?